welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thanks, David. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Palmwood Podcast. In our current series, we've been using a threefold definition to describe what we're calling true worship, reverence, which is a healthy fear of God, adoration, authentic and demonstrated love of God, and glory, which is expressed in faithful obedience, among other things. This week, we dig into the first of these, reverence, and we'll see that the prophet Isaiah is a great example for us. So what does it mean to fear the Lord like this? What exactly do we mean by the word reverence? That's where we're going in today's message. Our scripture today is going to be coming from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Starting with verse 1 and going through verse 8. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, and he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Thanks, Michael. Have you noticed? Every time we are invited in the scriptures into the throne room of God, there's a word that is repeated three times. Holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is going to become critical for us today. Um, we're now making a slight shift in our study of what true worship is. Going back to dig into our previous definition, when we, when we started this series, we started with a message called, What is Worship? What exactly is worship? And we said that worship really, biblically speaking, is comprised of three things, three layers that you can't really see where one lets off and the next one 
uh, picks up. But there's three things, reverence, adoration, and glory. And so today, we're going to focus on the first of those three things, reverence. Um, how many of you would recognize that we live in a time where the people around us no longer fear the Lord God Almighty. Would you all agree with that? There is no healthy fear of God around us anymore. And that's the thing that breaks my heart is even what we would say good people, even people that go to church <laughs> and that, that try to treat their fellow man well and, and to live by the golden rule, which is biblical, by the way. Um, even these people seem not to really have the fear of God in their, their lives anymore. King Uzziah was a good king of Judah. If you remember back a few weeks ago, I kind of gave you a little bit of the history of, of Israel. and We talked about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, I told you, they had some good kings and some bad kings. Uzziah was a good king. Uzziah was a king who was blessed by God. Uzziah also happened to be the first cousin of somebody whose name you might also recognize. His name is Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet was the first cousin of the king. He was a good king, but he was a good king that made a very grave mistake. You see, he was blessed by God his kingdom was plentiful, and particularly on the battlefield, he was really successful. But he, he like so many others before him, <clears throat> became prideful about what God was actually doing in his life. And there came a moment that I'm sure he came to regret tremendously, where he decided that he, as the king was going to go into the holy place, the, the inner sanctum of the temple, and burn incense before the Lord. Now, very clearly, the Lord had said that was the priest's job. This is not the holy of holies now, but the, the, the outer room around the holy place, which is where the altar of incense and, and the table of showbread and, and the, the candelabra, those, those different pieces of important furniture in the life of the Hebrew people were in that outer room just outside of the holy of holies. But only the priests, only those who were anointed descendants of Aaron were allowed to go in there and to practice these things before God because that was what he called them to do. Uzziah, in a moment of pride, and probably a little bit of stupidity, walked in and burned incense before the Lord. And I, I, I don't have the scripture open to me here. Uh, it's in Second Chronicles. You can read about this. But I think there were 80 priests that followed him in to try and stop him from doing that. I think the number was 80. It was a lot of them that went in to try and prevent him from doing this. And he pushed through. And as soon as he began doing it, the priests realized Leprosy was breaking out on his forehead and overtook his whole body. God judged him for coming in and burning unauthorized incense before the Lord. He usurped the role of the priests and God struck him with leprosy. Now Uzziah was a good king, but he made a bad decision. 
And in a time of pride, it was clear that he, in that moment, did not have what? The fear of the Lord. He went into the inner place without being invited by God. And as such, he fell under judgment. A good king who lost his fear of God. Now contrast him with his first cousin, Isaiah. Isaiah was a faithful worshiper in an era where the people around him were filled with indifference when it came to God. That's why Isaiah was raised up as a prophet, was to declare to the people, come back to the Lord. And so he saw his cousin, who he probably loved, be struck in judgment with the Lord. Here is the context. As Isaiah, a worshiper, finds himself in the temple and sees the very presence of God. There is a stark difference between Uzziah and Isaiah in similar circumstances. Why? Because Isaiah feared the Lord. Isaiah was a faithful worshiper, but his experience was far different. And today we'll learn why. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, as with so many of these messages in this series, I don't just feel inadequate, I know I am inadequate. And so once again, Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you will take me over. And you will so invade my mind, my heart, my speech, that my thoughts are your thoughts, my words are your, th your words. And, and this message is your message to your people. And that you will help us move to a place where we have a healthy fear of you once again. May our lives demonstrate real awe of God. May our lives demonstrate a practice reverence of God. And may the world fear you because of what they see in us. Be our teacher and our guide, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read to you our passage again this morning as we start because I want to have it fresh in your memory as we work our way through it. This is Isaiah's commissioning of God, by God. It's found in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's interesting, given the history that I've just told you, how he starts this, this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died... So this is, this is how this starts. Uzziah's judgment and ultimate penalty are fresh in Isaiah's mind as he articulates what happens to him in the temple of God. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now those of you who are familiar with the, the people of Israel, let's, let's say the faithful 
people of Israel and what they believed about actually seeing the face or the presence of God, what would a good Jew of that era experience if all of a sudden he or she opened their eyes and they saw God on his throne looking at them? Well, death, fear, right? Because they understood that except if God did something on their behalf, no one, God actually said this, no one may see my face and live. God actually said that in the Old Testament. That because of their sinfulness, now pre-sin, Adam and Eve walked with God. They saw God as he was. There was no reason for them to fear the, their, their creator because sin had not yet entered the world. But after chapter 3 now, what do you notice about Adam and Eve? Why did they hide? Why did they cover themselves? What did he say? What did Adam say to God? What was the reason? I heard you. I heard your footsteps, basically. And I was afraid. You see, with sin comes this new level of fear because God is completely other. He is completely holy, three times holy. We're going to hear that again today, holy, holy, holy. We're going to learn what that means today. He is so holy. He is so incredibly other that those of us who have sinned, if we come into his presence, unless he does something to rescue us, we are done for. No one may see his face and live. And this is Isaiah's context as he opens his eyes in the temple and sees the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two of their wings, they covered their faces. With two of their wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. By the way, that is not just a reference to dust. That's actually the smoke of God's presence. Think again, the pillar of fire by night, and what was it by day? This, this cloud, the smoke cloud that they called a smoking fire pot is one of the ways that it's, it's described. So as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. How did he go up into heaven? What is the description the disciples give us? A cloud. There's a cloud that all of a sudden forms around his feet and carries him up. It's God the Father. It's his glory coming around Jesus and carrying him up to his right hand. And this, this place, the, the temple being filled with smoke, I'm sure there was a lot of dust from the, door door, uh, the thresholds and doorposts shaking, but it wasn't just dust that was filling the temple. It was God's presence that was filling the temple. Woe to me, Isaiah cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen, see, there it is, the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. See, God did something now to rescue him. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying. So up, and, up until now, the voices are the seraphs. But now he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am, I said, send me. Isaiah's encounter begins as he sees the Lord. Isaiah's encounter begins in the presence of the Lord. In the biblical languages, there is a direct relationship between the word for face, the face of the Lord, and the word for presence. And so if you come into the presence of the Lord, you are going before the face of the Lord. They really are one and the same. That really is the, the, the concept there. And so Isaiah's encounter begins in the presence of the Lord. But, but unlike his cousin Uzziah, he was the Lord's prophet. Unlike his cousin Uzziah in that moment of stupidity, as he walks in unauthorized into the holy place, Isaiah is regularly seeking God. Isaiah is regularly worshiping God. And this is the foundation of who Isaiah is. He truly and regularly desired the Lord. He was seeking the Lord. And therein is all the difference. The scripture says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's exactly what Isaiah experienced. As he seeks the Lord, the Lord shows up. Isaiah describes him. It's interesting. God's presence is indelibly engraved on Isaiah's memory. I am sure as long as Isaiah lived, he never ever forgot what he saw on that day. And he describes it in great detail. Three things he says. Number one, God was on his throne, you see. So here, the ruler of Israel has just died, but the real ruler of Israel is still sitting on his throne. You follow? He is the real king. He is the real ruler. He is the real sovereign over Israel. God allowed many human kings to lead his people, but he was always the ultimate one leading and guiding and protecting his people. Isn't it interesting? that so many prophetic messages birthed by prophetic visions begin with this exact same vision. Have you ever noticed that? Job saw God on his throne. David saw God on his throne. Jeremiah saw God on his throne. Ezekiel saw God on his throne and described it in incredible detail. Daniel saw the Ancient of Days on his throne. The Apostle John saw God on his throne and wrote an entire book about God's growing dominion in the end. Second of all, Isaiah tells us that he is high and lifted up. God is majestic. God is exalted. 
God occupies the highest place. And if there is a principle we can draw from this, I think it's really critical when we walk into any space of worship. So this is an exercise room, right? During the week, it's a mild-mannered exercise room, but it becomes a super worship center on Sunday morning, right? We gather together. What makes this place sacred? God's presence. God's presence is what makes this place sacred. And here is the principle. When we come in, even if the electronics are not cooperating, even if we've had trouble assembling the backdrop behind us, which happens more often than you know, (laughs) even if the chairs are not straight like they're supposed to be, even if the camera's not working, and we've had all these kinds of challenges, when we stop and assemble to come into the presence of God, all worship is pointed upward. It doesn't matter what's going on on ground level, folks. Worship is always upward because our God is high and lifted up. He is exalted to the highest place. And we have to remember that. Thirdly, the train of his robe filled the temple. God's glory is uncontainable. The, the, the seraphs, as they're singing, talk about how his glory is filling the whole earth. It's, you can't contain the glory of God. But there's another thing going on here that a lot of us would miss if we don't understand something about the actual context of the year in which or the the time of which Isaiah wrote. There was an understanding in that time that the stronger or more important the king, the greater he had had won battles and, and the more people he was sovereign over, the longer would his train be on his robe. It was a mark of distinction. And so the most important, the strongest kings, the ones that were most highly revered, had the longest tails on their robe. And here Isaiah, I think, is writing something. Whether God is showing him this specifically to communicate this, or Isaiah is simply saying, you know what? I've seen a lot of long robes. None of them beats this one. But he says, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. Nobody has a robe train as long as our God's. Isaiah sees God, and he's taken aback. But then, as he begins to look around, he realizes that there also are angels attending God. Look at the description of the angels. Above God, there were seraphs, each with six wings. Listen to this. With two of the wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. The word seraph actually refers to one who burns. And so the seraphs, these angels actually, were brilliant as well. They were, I think it's appropriate to say, they had their own sense of glory as as holy, separate angels attending to God. However, notice these brilliant, glorious beings, notice their extreme humility. With two of their six wings, they're covering their faces in homage before God. With two of their wings, they're covering their feet. And two, they're flying. Even the heavenly host maintain a posture of humility and worship before our God. 
And if you listened to the passage that Gail read to us during our time of praise and worship, did you not see that also in heaven? That the 24 elders, whose rank, if you will, puts them right next to the throne of God, what do they do? They fall and they worship God. They cast their crowns. They give their authority back to the one who gave it to them. Extreme worship before God. And as Isaiah sees these angelic beings, he hears their thunderous and continuous call, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The threefold holy here in Hebrew tells us that God is not just separate, God is not just different, but he is perfect holiness. That word three is a number of perfection. He is perfectly holy. He is completely holy. He is supremely holy. In other words, the continuous angelic reminder is that our God is the utmost of different. He is the utmost of separate. He is the utmost of sin-free. He is the utmost one there is. And I take you back to what we've been saying in this series that makes sense because God is the creator. Everything else is the creation. There is nothing in all the universe that is like our God because he made it all. He's the creator. We are the creation. Isaiah is seeking the Lord and he sees him. He sees him high on his throne and lifted up. His glory is filling the temple. He sees the brilliant angels. He hears their continuous and thunderous call. And as he takes in this experience, every revulsion of his own sin erupts from within him. And he cries out, I am undone. Real worship brings us to this place. Real worship seeks God and finds Him. Real worship brings us into His holy presence. Real worship exposes our unfitness to be in His presence. There is only one response we can give to the presence of God, and that is complete surrender in awe. That's reverence. Isaiah shows us what real reverence is. Now, I told you, the Jews of that day understood if they saw the presence of God, if they saw the face of God, that was it. And what does Isaiah cry out? I'm undone. I remember my, uh, I, I learned Hebrew from a Messianic rabbi in seminary. And he was the one that, that told us there really is not an English word for what is translated here undone in the King James language. He said the closest English that we have for that term is pfft. I am pfft. I vaporize in the presence of God, instantaneously done, come apart. 
And it's only if God does something that we are allowed to be in his presence. Moses knew the risk, Exodus chapter 33. And he finally says, look, I've had enough. I want to see your glory. (laughs) And God says, Moses, you can't do that. He says, I tell you what, I'm going to put you up here in this cleft of this rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to walk past you. And after I declare who I am to you, you already know it, but I'm going to declare who I am. I'm going to walk past you. I'll take my hand away. And you can see, and the Hebrew word there actually is backside. You can see my backside because the backside of God was all the glory that Moses could stand. (laughs) Nobody may see my face and live. And yet there comes a point in time where God actually says of Moses, Moses is my friend. I talk to him, how? Face to face. You see, God did something. God, we don't know, it doesn't say in the scripture, but God did something in that relationship where Moses was redeemed so he could stand. He finally got his wish. He could stand before the presence of God. Here, a seraph goes to the altar and with tongs takes a live burning coal from God's altar and he comes back and he touches Isaiah's lips. What a beautiful thing. One of the most beautiful things in this passage, probably even in all of the Old Testament before Christ comes, is the redemption of Isaiah. Jesus hasn't come yet, so, so that level of redemption is not yet offered. It's coming. It's, it's been prophesied, but it's not there yet. And of course, Isaiah is going to tell us a lot about the redemption that's coming with Jesus. It, it comes later in his, in his ministry, but he's going to understand this. But here at the very beginning of his ministry, Isaiah is redeemed. The seraph declares, your sins have been atoned for. Uzziah thought too highly of himself and entered into the holy place in an unworthy manner. Isaiah, on the other hand, came seeking the Lord. He came as a worshiper. Now, Uzziah was no more evil than Isaiah. Isaiah was not better than his human king and cousin. But he came in worship. And that's what makes the difference. Listen to this beautiful part of the story, uh, verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, listen, these beautiful words. See, this has touched your lips Your guilt, it's not covered, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is what happens in Jesus, see? And God gave it as a gift to Isaiah. Isaiah came as a worshiper. And as he is now probably reeling in the the redemption that he has received... God speaks finally and says, I've got an assignment. Who's going to take it? And Isaiah, in the posture of worship, having received the gift of redemption from God from the tongs of the seraph, Isaiah responds and says, I have no choice. I will worship you to the end and I will serve you to the end. I don't know what it's all going to be, but send me. And friends, this is the pattern. 
This is the pattern we see. When we are in a right posture before God in worship, he then qualifies us. He redeemed Isaiah. There's this beautiful saying. I heard it from Reverend Wellington Boone years ago, and I've heard it from other people since. God rarely calls the qualified, but he always qualifies the called. And that's exactly what he did with Isaiah. It's exactly what he did with me, by the way. You see, when we are in a right posture of worship, God will qualify us for his call upon us, for his purposes. We have another beautiful story in the New Testament that looks just like this. Acts chapter 13, Paul, Barnabas, and several elders are worshiping and fasting and praying together. They're, they're in this, this time of worship and just seeking the Lord. And the Holy Spirit speaks and says, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I'm going to send them. And we know about the story about Paul, don't we? That was the birthing of his mission. As he said, here I am, send me. This window into Isaiah's experience before God helps us understand reverence and its results. God's presence will drop us to our knees in awe, but the God who could consume us redeems the worshiper for his purposes. And here is a principle we need to learn. A life filled with this kind of God-centered reverence is a life of great impact for God's purposes. So what happens when God's faithful people walk in this awe on a regular basis? Well, there are several references to awe and reverence throughout the Bible. We're going to look at five of them just to kind of round out our picture today. But as God's people walk in this reverence, as we, we are living to seek God and, and experiencing awe before him every single day, the first benefit is ours. When we see what God has done, we forget our shame and respond to his holiness. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 29. It's, it's a, a part of the prophetic story about Judah. Judah has not been following, and, and so they've been judged. But God says there's a day coming when I am going to take away your shame, and you're going to be celebrating again. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. But then God redeems him, and his shame is taken away so that he can serve the Lord. That may be what has happened to some of you as well. When the world sees how God restores his people and lavishes on his people, the world around us then will tremble because of him. Jeremiah tells us this in Jeremiah 33. Again, God's people have not been following him. They've, they, they're walking right now in exile and judgment. But Jeremiah is telling them, look, God is saying a time is coming when I'm going to restore you. And when I restore you, I'm not just going to take you to where you were, but it's going to be even grander. And the people around you are going to look at what I do to lavish my love and my provision on you, and they're going to shake because of it. When religious people see how God forgives and heals those that he loves, they will revere him. I love this story, Matthew 9 and Luke 5. It tells the story of the paralytic. Jesus gets there in front of a whole bunch of religious people, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And what, what do the religious people do? Oh, man, they go off. Oh, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive. Okay, fine, fine. 
so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, which is harder. Say, I, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk. But so you religious people will know that I have the, the right, the authority, to forgive sin. Hey, buddy, take up your mat and walk. The guy gets up and walks, and it says that all of the people were filled with awe. When the, when the world sees God do the impossible, even raising the dead, they will respond with awe, and God's renown will spread throughout the area. So Jesus here meets a widow from the area of Nain, and her son is dead, and it's, he's her only provision. And so everyone around knows the guy's dead. It's, it's, it's old news, if you will. And they're carrying him in a coffin, <laughs> and Jesus says, oh, wait, stop, and raises him from the dead. And it says that the people were filled with awe, and they proclaim, a prophet is among us. By the way, what's Jesus' name? God with us, remember, Emmanuel? It wasn't just a prophet, it was God who was with them. And they declare, God has come to help his people. Or when the church exercises her God-given authority, Acts chapter 2, everyone will be filled with awe and will extend favor to God's people, and many will come to salvation. You see, it isn't just that we would be in awe, although that is enough. It is the fruit that comes with reverence that is also significant. I believe, friends, it's part of my conviction for preaching this series. I believe that God's people in the United States of America, by and large, I know there are exceptions. I can point to exceptions, people that I know that are, are clearly exceptions. But by and large, I think that God's people, God's church in the United States of America is fruitless, not seeing people coming to Christ and, and not seeing prayers answered and not seeing fill in the blank. They're, they're not walking as they should because they're not worshiping. And the reason they are not worshiping is they no longer fear the Lord. The answer to this is for God's people to experience his awe once again. And so I want to leave you with this question very seriously, and this is a good one for us to talk about amongst ourselves. When was the last time you, believer, were really in awe, fearful reverence because of your God? Let's pray. Father, I'm almost afraid to pray this. But may we experience your awe. Thank you in advance for the redemption we have in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.